Let me welcome all those uh, who are gathered this, with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. It is a, it's a glad day for our community, for Christ Bible Church, uh, first and foremost because we know Christ as our Savior and have experienced His salvation, but also because today uh, five individuals are declaring their allegiance to King Jesus in baptism. So it's a day uh, to celebrate the grace of God. I invite you to turn in God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we will look at verses 14, 314 through 4, 5, chapter 4, verse 5. 314 to 4, 5. Let's hear God's word together. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that you are the God of truth. There is no darkness or error in you. And every word that comes to us through Holy Scripture from your mouth is a true and perfect word. Father, we thank you that you have perfectly, accurately, truthfully, unfailingly truthfully made yourself known to us in Scripture and in the gospel, the good news about your Son, Jesus. We pray that this morning we would believe your truth from the heart. We pray that we would be eager to accept and believe and build our lives on everything that you teach us. Father, we pray that you would chase out the darkness of sin and error in our minds and hearts through your word this morning. We pray that the light of truth would cause us to become more like Jesus this morning and would cause us to think rightly and act rightly in the world for the glory of your name. We pray, Father, for your blessing on the proclamation of the word this morning. We ask, Lord, that it would accomplish all of your good purposes for us and we pray that you'd be glorified. Amen. One of the burning questions in the 16th century, in the time of the Protestant Reformation, where Protestants and Catholics were going their own separate ways, was where do you find the true church? If you don't find the true church through an institutional connection to the Pope, through fellowship with the papacy, where do you find the true church? 
where do you find God's people? And the reformers identified two essential marks of the church, but the first mark of the church was that the church is there where the gospel is faithfully and accurately taught. Where the scriptures are faithfully taught, where the gospel is faithfully declared, there you find the true church. Along the second mark would be the proper, the right administration of the sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. Luther declared that, quote, the sole, uninterrupted, infallible mark of the church has always been the Word. And this aligns with what Paul teaches about the nature and mission of the church in this passage. Using very striking language that we'll explore further, Paul describes the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. I should say, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We'll note three things as we look at this passage then. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. We'll consider the significance of that affirmation. It strives against error, and it proclaims the gospel. Church is the pillar of of truth, strives against error, it proclaims the gospel. Uh, These verses are crucial for understanding this letter because verses 14 and 15 constitute something of a purpose statement for the letter. They describe why Paul has written this letter to Timothy. And Paul observes that he writes these things to Timothy so he will know how one ought to behave in the household of God. First question is, what, to what does these things refer? And as we look back at what Paul has just been saying, he, Paul has been talking about the proper arrangement of the, of the church. Uh, he's been speaking about prayer in gathered worship. He's been talking about the place of men and women in the gathered assembly. He's been, he's been uh, talking about qualifications for church officers, uh, overseers, and deacons, and what those qualifications are. So these things has in view that, that material, uh, the teaching that the, the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy about the right ordering of the church, uh, but it also includes what he will say about things like the proper care of widows, uh, correction of elders, things that he will get to in the letter. But in short, Paul is writing these things so that Timothy and the Ephesian church will know how God wants his church, his gathered assembly, his people to be ordered. And the implication is very significant. There is a right way and a wrong way to order the life of the church. This is how one ought to behave in the household of God. And here the emphasis is not simply on a person's individual conduct, as important as that is. Here the emphasis is more corporate. Here, how God, here is how God's people together ought to behave. Now, so the significance of this is that we are not free to just make up whatever we want when it comes to the church. We often well understand that God has provided a blueprint, a pattern for how individual believers should live, and we need to pay attention to it and obey it. But we often miss the fact that God has also provided a blueprint or pattern for the church. Sometimes this is missed, and when it is missed, what do we do? We become very pragmatic. We start asking the question, what works? 
instead of, in the first instance, what has God said he wants the church to be and how he wants the church to be governed? Of course, Scripture doesn't tell us everything about everything. Scripture doesn't tell us we should meet at 9 a.m. instead of 8 a.m. or 12 p.m. or whatever. Uh, Scripture doesn't say do two worship songs before the sermon and then three worship songs, right? These are matters of prudence. We, We try to arrange these things in a way that would edify the body and bring glory to Jesus. But Scripture does teach us very clearly that we should meet, that we should worship together as a community, that we should sing the praises of God, that the Word should be taught Uh, and preach, that we should take the Lord's Supper, that we should have two offices, namely uh, the office of pastor and deacon, right? These things are set forward in Scripture, and what we need to do, Paul suggests, is pay attention to God's design, not just for us as individuals, but for the church. There is a right way for the people of God to conduct themselves as a people. And then Paul goes on to describe this church. He characterizes the church as the household of God. Now the Greek word oikos, which is translated as household, can mean one of two things here. It can mean the literal building, the house that the family lives in, or it can refer to household, the family that lives in the building. Both are possibilities, both make sense in context, and both are taught in scripture. Uh, The church is the temple of God, It is the dwelling place of God. He dwells in the midst of his people. We are his sacred uh, dwelling, his temple. That's a biblical idea seen in many places. Uh, But it's also true, true to say that the church is the family of God. This is also a biblical idea, and I think that's what's in view here because the word oikos, used three times previously in this chapter when it comes to the management of a deacon's household and elder's household is used to refer to household, not simply house. And so in keeping with that usage, it seems that household is in view here. So the church is the family of God. When God saves us from our sins, he doesn't just wash us of our guilt and shame and through the shed blood of his son present us spotless and holy before himself. He does that, and praise God that he does that, but also through Jesus, he adopts us into his family. This is a blessing one step beyond the mere forgiveness of sins. When we become Christians, we become sons and daughters of God. He becomes our Father in heaven, and precisely because he is our Father in heaven, we are brothers and sisters to one another. We we belong to the same spiritual family. The implications of this truth are massive and rich, but that's how we ought to view one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we recognize that spiritual reality, that should prompt us to care for each other, to serve one another, to be patient with one another, and to love one another, and never be indifferent toward one another. But it is precisely because the church is the family of God that it ought to be ordered according to the wisdom of God and the word of God. Church's household of God, uh, and then describe, the household of God is described as the church or the assembly of the living God. The, the Greek word from which we have the English word church is ekklesia, and it literally means assembly or gathering. And uh, that seems to be in view here. The church is the assembly of the living God. Living God indicates that there's only one true God. All other gods are false, dumb idols. There is one true 
living God, and he alone creates and he alone saves. And we are his people assembled in his presence to adore him. It may well be that Israel's experience at Sinai uh, functions as the background to the church as the assembly. Israel gathers together in the sacred presence of God at Mount Sinai to adore, to receive his word. And in a similar way, we who have been redeemed through Jesus, we gather in the sacred presence of God to adore him. Whatever else we do as a church, we assemble. We gather regularly for the purpose of worship. Gathering physically and tangibly with God's people is an important part of being in the church. So church is the church of the living God. And then here's the crucial phrase that I want to uh, consider at length. The Apostle Paul describes the church as the pillar and the buttress of truth. Is that a great metaphor for the church? Uh, What does a pillar do? What does a column do? It upholds the roof or perhaps holds it up so it can be visible, but mainly it supports and upholds the truth. Paul, when describing the mission of the church, describes it with this metaphor. What does the church do? It supports the truth. What truth? Well, in the very next verse, the Apostle Paul goes on to summarize the gospel using an early Christian creed or hymn. So it is especially the truth of the gospel that the church guards, defends, and declares to the world. We contend as the people of God for the truth of the gospel. We declare the truth of the gospel. Now let me ask you a question. Is it that the truth of the gospel supports the church? Or the church supports the truth of the gospel? We've got some very theologically astute individuals here in the front row. The answer is yes. Uh, both. The church exists because of the death and resurrection of the Son of God. That message is declared, and when it is believed, we are transferred from death to life, from darkness to light. The source of the church's life is the gospel, and in that sense, the gospel is the support of the church. We exist and have life because of that good news, and we are sustained in that life because of that good news. So the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, as Paul says in Romans, does indeed support the church and even creates the church and sustains the church. But at the same time, it is the mission of the church to defend this truth, to contend for it, to teach it, and to proclaim it in the world. That's at the heart of its mission. It's one of the reasons why churches are so committed, or at least they should be so committed, to teaching and preaching in public, in private, in big groups, in small groups, uh, one of, because this is at the heart of her mission, to cause the people of God to grow in their knowledge and understanding of Christ, to go deep in their knowledge of Jesus and to go deep in their obedience to Jesus, and therefore we're a community of learners and we are constantly communicating the truth to one another. That's basic to what the church is supposed to do. And beyond just building up the people of God, the church is called to bear witness to the truth in a dark world. We are called to declare the good news about Jesus Christ and hold out that hope to a dying and dark world that they might come to find the life and forgiveness that we have come to know. What is the mission of the church? Undoubtedly, there are many things the church is called to do, but what is the one thing without which it can't do anything else? 
Well, it declares the truth, it contends for the truth, it holds on, on to the truth, and it celebrates the truth of the gospel. Should you find yourself in one of those uh, moments in life where you're looking for a church, what church should I attend? What should you look for? Well, according to this passage, is this church a pillar and buttress of the truth? Is the word of God faithfully taught? Is scripture expounded? Is Christ exalted? Is the gospel proclaimed? This is absolutely essential. But we recognize that in proclaiming the gospel, there's, there's a flip side to proclaiming the gospel, and that's contending against error. Contending against error and contending for the truth are opposite sides of the same coin, and the church to be faithful must do both. We'll consider in a moment the church's message, or the gospel, the good news that I've just mentioned, but for, for, the, for a moment, we're gonna skip over verse 16, and we're gonna jump to four, one through five. If you've been with us as we've been working through Timothy, you know that there is false teaching lurking in the background. And here, we see what that false teaching is a little bit more clearly. There's a revelation of the Spirit that um, Paul makes mention of. And the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, teaches that in later times, some will depart from the faith. So there's a revelation by God's Holy Spirit to Paul, and the revelation is that in later times, some will abandon the faith. Now the question is, when are these later times? Our first instinct might be to say this refers to a narrow stretch of time right before Jesus returns. But as we often see in the New Testament, that phrase later times or last days refers to the whole period of time between Christ's first coming and his return. And this phrase is used in the same way here. How do we know that? Because the teaching of the last days is precisely the teaching that Timothy has to contend against, indicating that the last days were there in Paul's day and Timothy's day. And the Bible speaks like that because salvation has already been accomplished. The Son of God has died and is now risen and there is salvation in his name. There is nothing left for God to do to redeem a sinful humanity except for one thing, for Jesus to return and make all things new. Everything else is finished. The church is being gathered in, and this is a time where the gospel will go forth. This will be also a time of opposition to the church, uh, but we are in the last days. So in these last days, uh, this period of time will be characterized by false teaching. Some will depart, that is, they will turn from the truth of the gospel through, the, through deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Really significant statement here. What it shows is that false teaching has its roots in demonic work, evil spirits who work against the truth of the gospel. What stands behind falsehood and error are demonic powers who seek to destroy people spiritually. It's not just that demons seek to tempt us to do what is wrong and contradicts the will of God, that's true of course, but demons are also at work to deceive us, to confuse us, to insert error and false doctrine and false teaching into the life 
of the church to destabilize and destroy the people of God. So when you, you see false teaching and it clothes itself with clever arguments and sophisticated spokesperson, you need to see beyond appearances and understand that behind false teaching in serious doctrinal error is demonic activity intended to destroy the truth and trip people up spiritually. Now, Paul references here three categories. You have those who are deceived, who embrace the false teaching. You have the demons who are the ultimate source of the false teaching. And then you have in verse 2 the instrument through which the false teaching is conveyed. The insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. These are the false teachers. And the wording here, the description of them is liars. Hypocrites whose consciences are seared suggest that they know what they're doing. Suggest that they know that they're in error. But because they don't care and their consciences are hardened, cauterized as it were, and they don't feel anything, they are content to propagate error and destroy other people for their own gain. Very sober view of the origin of false teaching. Now, what specifically was being taught? What was the error in view? Look at verse 3. Paul speaks of those who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Basically, the, the essence of this false teaching is that they were prohibiting what God permitted. God was saying, you're, you have permission to marry, you have permission to eat certain foods, whatever foods they were saying you can't eat, perhaps meat, most likely meat here, can't eat meat. Uh, they were saying no to what God had said yes about. And that was the essential issue. Now, we may well ask, all the details aren't clear, and, and Paul doesn't present this error in a systematic form so we understand its inner logic. But we may well ask, why is this so spiritually destabilizing? Certainly God permits us to marry and enjoy meat or whatever, but these things are not required of us, so why would they be so spiritually damaging? Well, one possibility is it may be that they're saying these things are necessary for salvation. To be saved, you can't marry and you can't eat meat. In which case, what they're doing is they're not just saying these things are off limits, but they're denying the gospel. The work of Jesus isn't sufficient to save us. We need to add to it, and we need to add these things to it. One possibility. We're not, we're not sure. Perhaps more probable, though, is that by saying these things are off limits, they create guilt for those who are, in fact, married and for those who might enjoy a steak from time to time. Uh, their teaching creates false guilt. It robs people of joy, and it's spiritually destabilizing because even though they're not actually disobeying God, they think they're disobeying God. And it's producing uh, guilt and all kinds of spiritual issues, and perhaps connected to this, their vision and their picture of God is being distorted. Do you remember Genesis 3 when the Satan comes to Eve and he says, is it really true that God said you can't eat of any of the trees? God said you can eat of all the trees except one. And Satan comes and says, man, is, really, is God really that restrictive? And so perhaps what's demonic here is that not only is it creating false guilt, but it's distorting their picture of God. God is stingy and reluctant to bestow blessing. But whatever the precise nature of the air, what is instructive for us is that it's spiritually damaging to be narrower than God. It's spiritually damaging to say no to what God has said yes to. 
to prohibit what God permits. Like we understand the error in the opposite direction, to be broader than God. To say, for example, that a premarital sexual intimacy is right. Well, that would be wrong. That's, that's sinful and it's destructive. Um, but we understand that kind of error. But there's also an error on the opposite extreme, the error of taking what God has said yes to and then saying no to it, it's off limits. You can't marry, you can't eat, you know, eat this food. It produces, as I've suggested, feelings of guilt, it robs us of our joy, and it hinders our relationship with Jesus. Uh, Joe Rigney has an excellent description of the de destabilizing effect of false guilt. He writes, false guilt kills true joy and ruins us for fruitful ministry. Impossible obligations lead to constant failure and incurable guilt, which only serve to breed greater sin. Read that again. Impossible obligation, constant failure, incurable guilt, greater sin. So we need to make sure, as God's people, that the things we are seeking to obey are actually God's will for us. And we are not imposing on ourselves man-made rules and regulations that deviate from what God has told us in Scripture. We need to make sure that we are not being prohibitive where God has, in fact, given us his permission. You need to be careful if there are people in your life who are insisting, this is, this is God's will for you, and this is specifically what it looks like in every domain. Be, be sure to ask, where is that in Scripture? Where do you see that in Scripture? Because this kind of thing where uh, sinful people bind the consciences of other individuals uh, happens and it's spiritually destabilizing and we want to make sure that our conscience is in alignment with Scripture, not man-made rules and regulations. So how does Paul respond to this false teaching? By affirming two things, which he repeats basically three times. Everything God made is good, creation is good, and if we receive it with thanksgiving, we're just fine. Creation is good, and everything he's made is meant to be received with thanksgiving. There are variations on that theme. So, speaks of those who forbid marriage, require abstinence, and then he describes the foods this way, foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Whatever foods they were saying are off limit, Paul is saying, actually, God made these things for us to enjoy. It doesn't simply sustain life, it brings delight, and God created these foods for us to enjoy and give thanks. So when you're, when you're sitting in front of a pan full of sizzling bacon, the Christian response is to lift up your heart to heaven and acknowledge that God is, is the God who gives such good gifts to his people and partake with a cheerful heart. That's the Christian posture. Connect all of the good things that God provides to him. He is the source of all of the things that refresh and enliven and give joy to us. Uh, and so when we experience these good gifts, we lift up our eyes to heaven and we give thanks. That's the appropriate Christian response. In contrast to other religions which view the body, which view creation, which view stuff as intrinsically evil, the Bible has a very positive view of stuff and matter and created pleasures. It affirms that they are the creator's gifts to us and not intrinsically evil, but good and a blessing from God. And that's the posture that we should have. And then in verse 4, Paul goes on, and he expands the range of things that are declared good. Everything created by God is good. 
Here he's reflecting Genesis 1, where God looks at his creation and says it's all good. Not just food, not just marriage and marital intimacy, but the kaleidoscope of pleasures that God has given to his world are good. Pleasure is not man's idea, it's God's. It comes from him. Sunsets, freshly brewed coffee, hot croissants and jam, late night conversations, ocean waves, hikes, extending your tired limbs on the couch at the end of a hard day, and the sheer pleasure of that. The whole whole world is full of creaturely delights, and they are good, and they have their origin and source in the Creator. And again, the proper response, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for this beautiful sunset. You are the good creator of all things, and I praise you even as I bask in its warmth and light. Verse 5, all things are made holy by the word of God, are declared to be holy and thus permissible by the word of God. Again, I think Genesis 1 is in the background here. Uh, The word of God affirms that creation and created pleasures are good, and therefore they are lawful to us. They're not defiling. They are used rightly a blessing. And and Paul says, made holy by the word of God in prayer. And I think prayer here simply refers to the thanksgiving that has already been mentioned twice. Creation is good. Creaturely delights are good. And they become good to us when we receive them with gratitude in our hearts to the creator. When we trace them to their ultimate source in God and say, you are good, Lord. Thank you for this sizzling steak. Thank you for this sunset. Thank you for this book. Now, I want to underscore one significant implication of what Paul says here. And I want you to listen carefully. And here's the implication. We may enjoy God's created gifts with a clean conscience. We may enjoy God's created gifts with a clean conscience. You are not sinning if you're enjoying a good meal or a hike or a good movie or a good book or your favorite team on TV. It's important to recognize that because there's a lot of false guilt in Christian circles because there's a suspicion that if I'm enjoying created gifts, then I'm not being faithful to God. And there's sometimes sometimes the assumption that the more I grow in my love for Jesus, the less I will delight in creation, the less I will care about created gifts because I'll care only about God. And we view the relationship between God and creation as one of tension and antagonism. The more spiritual I become, the less patience and time I have for created gifts. I focus on God. And if I'm enjoying something too much, it must be the case that I'm sinning. This is an unbiblical way of thinking about created pleasure and the creator. And if we think in those terms, we are going to experience a great deal of false guilt. It's a bit like this. Imagine that there's a good father who uh, has gotten his son lots of really great gifts for Christmas, and he wraps them up and he puts them under the Christmas tree, red wrapping, blue wrapping, yellow wrapping, and so on. Uh, They're all there, and in the morning he goes and wakes up his son and says, hey, come down, it's time to open gifts. Now imagine that son comes down and he looks at the gifts and says, Dad, I'm not going to open any of them because I love you too much. 
I'm not going to accept any of these gifts because I don't want them to get between me and you. Well, that's good. You should love the Father more than the gifts. We should love God more than created pleasures. But that's not the right way to respond to his gifts. The right way to love the Father in that situation is to open the gifts and be thankful. The right way to honor God and the many gifts that he has given to us is to receive them rightly and with gratitude and give thanks for them and acknowledge that he is the source of them. Be careful of viewing God's gifts fundamentally as temptations rather than as what they really are, the creator's gifts to refresh us and bless us. So what this text teaches us that if we're using God's gifts properly, we should not feel guilty about the pleasure that we find in all the different things God has given to us. Now there is, of course, a qualification here. We live on this side of the fall. And there is nothing intrinsically wrong with God's gifts, but there is something wrong with our hearts. And there is a temptation to take the good things God gives to us and make them ultimate things, to put them at the center instead of God. And when that happens, we do sin. But we don't sin because any of these things are inherently sinful. We sin because we are sinful and we misuse, abuse, and overuse God's gifts as a result of our sin. The problem lies with us, not with the gift. So if you, and we should watch ourselves and we should be on guard, and if we find that we are putting second things first above God, then yes, we should repent, and it may be appropriate to take a season away from certain gifts for the sake of self-control. But if you love God and are putting him first, and you're living a life for his glory and living in fellowship with him, if he's at the center of your life, then the gifts that he gives you to refresh you along life's way should be received with gratitude and with a clean conscience. Perhaps we need, to, we need to learn to do this better than we do, to learn to connect the many pleasures of life to God. Uh, G.K. Chesterton makes this observation. He says, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert and the pantomime, which I think is a play, and grace before I open a book a grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. In other words, I give thanks for it all. I see God's hand and goodness in all of it. I see his fingerprints on all of it. And so my heart is constantly soaring to God with gratitude and adoration. Do you do that when you enjoy... Um, watching your favorite basketball team, when you enjoy a morning cup of coffee, when you enjoy the sunset, sunset hike, do you turn to God and say, Lord, you are good. Thank you. I think one reason it's important to do that is it deepens our awareness of the goodness of God. When our table is creaking under the weight of good food and it is surrounded by people we love, at that moment we need to pause and go, this is from God. This is what he is like, and he is very, very good. That's the biblical answer to the demonic lie that God is stingy and reluctant to see us happy. So as Christians, on the basis of God's word, we affirm the goodness of creation and affirm that used rightly, God's gifts are a source of blessing for which we should give thanks. So this is the 
negative side of the church's mission contend against error. But positively, now we go back to what Paul says in 3.16, the church is meant to declare, proclaim, and defend the gospel. And here in 16, you have a terse summary of the gospel, maybe a fragment of an early Christian hymn or a creedal statement. It has a certain rhythm, terseness, compactness that suggests that it has a poetic quality. That's why in many translations, it's separated from the text above and below to indicate that it's got you know, these poetic features. And it is a six-line celebration summary of Christ and the good news. Line one, he was manifested in the flesh. This is an affirmation of the incarnation. The incarnation. The eternal son of God who made all things and upholds all things by the word of his power. That son became one of us. Was born as a little baby. He who is omniscient had to learn and grow as a boy. Jesus became man without ceasing to be God. The incarnation is a, is a mystery at the very heart of our faith. He became one of us. He so identified with our misery and plight that the creator entered his creation to redeem us. As a human being, as man and God, he always obeyed the Father. As a human being, he gave his spotless life for us sinners at the cross where he bore the judgment of God. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, which is a reference to the resurrection. Uh, Romans 8, 11 says, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and then Paul goes on, but notice in this instance, the Spirit is viewed as the one who imparted resurrection life to Jesus. And it's that concept that stands in view here. Through the resurrection by the Holy Spirit, the claims of Jesus as God's King and Son of God are vindicated, authenticated. The resurrection declares that Jesus really is the Messiah, God's King and Son of God. The resurrection means that there is no more debt to pay for our sins. Our sin and guilt has been left there in the grave pardoned, set aside, and now the Son of God raised from the dead will never die again and reigns in glory. Second affirmation is an affirmation of Christ's resurrection. He was seen by angels. This is probably connected to the resurrection, a way of capturing the glory of the risen Lord in heaven. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. After the resurrection, the church did not become suddenly silent. After the resurrection, through the impartation of the Holy Spirit, the church begins to speak, and it begins to proclaim the good news about Jesus to the world. And that proclamation is not in vain. That proclamation is believed on in the world. The risen Lord through the Spirit-empowered proclamation of the church, is bringing a people to himself. Has been for millennia. Today we celebrate the fact five individuals in our midst are declaring their allegiance to King Jesus, are declaring the fact that they too have been washed by Jesus 
and are committed to following him. And what we see here locally is true globally and universally. The risen Lord is building his church, drawing a people to himself through the proclamation of the gospel. This is what the church does. It's the pillar and buttress of truth. And finally, he's taken up in glory, a reference to his uh, ascension to heaven and his enthronement in the presence of God a way of speaking about Christ's universal sovereignty, his reign over the nations, his reign over all things. Above the noise and chaos and evil and darkness down here stands Christ who is glorified and dwells in the very presence of God in glory and splendor. Sometimes we just see the darkness. We see the false teachers, the doctrines of demons, but Paul lifts up our gaze to heaven and says, look at the one who is enthroned there. How can he fail? And how could you think for a moment that he will do anything other than build his church and triumph over the powers of darkness? And having that vision of the risen Lord, we, his church, never lose heart. However deep the darkness is, we cheerfully affirm and rejoice in the reign of Jesus over all of it. And we know that his kingdom will come, darkness will flee, and there is a resurrection on the other side of this darkness. So we don't lose heart. Jesus is Lord. We cheerfully declare the good news to others because that is true. This is the church's message. This is what the church has called to declare to the world. This is what it stands for. Christ triumphant and hope and salvation in his name. And that's a great message. The call is for the church always to declare that message. And the call to us individuals, as individuals is to hold on to that message, to cling to it till Jesus returns to persevere in trusting in Christ and in the truth about Christ. May he grant us to do so more and more to the end. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you acknowledging that you are our Lord and Lord of all. And it is our earnest desire that you would receive from us as individuals and from us as a church the glory that is your due. Lord, apply your word to our hearts, strengthen us to be faithful, and bless, Lord, the, the word that was proclaimed today. Amen.